tragically, the words that you just heard read have been quoted by Christians to slaves to compel them to obedience. These words, these verses, have been leveraged to enslave human beings while simultaneously declaring that all men are created equal. There's no way around the reality of history. There's no way to read these texts in our age without reflecting on the fact that Christians have used these texts for their own purposes. So when we come to a text like this, we, we need to think carefully about it. Because we're Christians, because it's the Bible, and then for our church in particular, a church that partners with the Southern Baptist Convention, a convention that was founded in large part with the motivation to protect a slave-owning missionary, we have to look at these texts and recognize the reality that they have been used by Christians in a way that, that I'm going to suggest is the exact opposite of what Paul was trying to do here. There are individuals who would defend those who have used the text in this way. And there are individuals who have left the faith because, in part at least, of texts like this and the way they've been used. So as with many of these household code texts, there's a lot of historical background that we have to work through. And I want you to encourage you to follow along with me in this because not only do you need to know how to read this text and respond to it appropriately, but you as ambassadors of Christ and witnesses of the gospel need to be able to relate to people who only know the abuse of this text in Christian history and nothing of the great good that these texts actually were. So if, if this is hard to work through, press forward. I think that we we will come to a conclusion where we'll start to understand that the abuses of this text are completely opposite of what, what Paul intended. I'm going to pray that God helps us through this and that he gives us discernment and wisdom as we seek to relate to God's word rightly and to put it into action in our lives appropriately. Father, we come before you recognizing in humility that we are no better than Christians who have used this text in a way that has abused and enslaved others. We cannot claim to be wiser, to be more spiritual, to be better situated in the course of history. We recognize that we are prone to error as well. Yet even still, we must look at the way these texts have been used, and recognize that they are the opposite of the message of the kingdom that Jesus brought. We pray that you would give us wisdom to read these texts rightly, to understand them, and to respond appropriately. In Christ we pray. Amen. When dealing with this text, um, depending on where you read and what you listen to, there's a brief comment that slavery in the ancient world was so different than slavery in the Americas that we just don't even need to think anymore about it. We can just move on and then directly apply Paul's commands here to employees and employers in the workplace. 
I want to suggest that that's not the case at all. Um, even as we understand employees and employers in our day, there are very few who are inescapably bound to their employer. And so it trivializes the issue just to say slavery then was different than it was in America and we can just apply this to, to our employment. That's not the case at all. Slavery in the ancient day was awful. It, it was not good. Certainly, there are distinctions between slavery in the ancient world and, and what was experienced in American history. And that distinction primarily relates to the racially or ethnically based nature of slavery in the United States. The, the slavery in the ancient world was not based on skin color or race or something like that. Um, so we might make that distinction, and that would be a right distinction to make. Virtually anyone could be enslaved in the ancient world. And in fact, you might even sell yourself into slavery to, to avoid an even worse experience in life. But slavery in the ancient world was terrible. Slaves had no legal existence or rights. Slaves were often branded by their masters. They could be executed by their masters with no legal recourse. They could be beaten, they could be sexually violated, they were compelled to labor as their masters dictated. Certainly, there were individuals, because ancient slavery was much broader than modern slavery or near-modern slavery, such that there were, in some instances, individuals who would find great wealth as they entered into slavery. As, as they became the heir of their masters or something like that, there was for some, and, and that's the minority, a path towards wealth and prosperity through slavery a, as a slave. But that was very, very rare. Most slaves in the ancient world were mistreated, they were exploited, and, and they were condemned to a, a life of no legal existence at all. They were not treated as humans. Slavery in the ancient world was evil, and, and we have to acknowledge that. Um, if we don't acknowledge that, not only are we denying the historical records of slavery that are there, but also we, don't, we won't be able to understand what Paul is doing here. If we tried to say Paul was just talking to people in a world where slavery was just uh, maybe not super desirable, but okay element of their economic system, we're going to hear Paul's commands in one way. But if we understand that slavery was an evil institution that did undergird the economic system of the ancient world, we're going to hear it in a totally different way. If slavery was evil, we might ask, why did Paul not abolish it? Why didn't Paul write to the Ephesian church saying, free every slave and rise up against your governmental entity and abolish slavery? Or perhaps in a less overt way, why don't we have Paul acting as William Wilberforce in England? Why isn't he advocating before the state to abolish slavery? Well, the answer to that, again, lies in the historical situation. So let me give you a few lines of thinking. If, if slavery is evil, why didn't Paul abolish it? First, it would be a fantasy to think that Paul could abolish slavery. The governmental system of the ancient world is nothing like our experience of a governmental system now. There, 
there is no way that Paul could have lobbied before the government for the abolishment of slavery. Remember who Paul is. He himself is a slave, and even as he writes this letter, he's likely in prison. So to imagine that Paul had the kind of political capital to abolish slavery is a fantasy. That's expecting something of Paul that he could never do. That, that would be even more absurd than you suggesting that I, as a pastor, could abolish abortion in the United States. Well, that we might have a governmental system where through political lobbying and other means, religious leaders could, could advocate for that, the abolishment of abortion, but, but that is virtually impossible even in our own world, which is friendly towards things like civil disobedience and, and lobbying and political movements. That was just not the case for Paul. So to place an expectation that Paul should have abolished slavery is expecting something of him that just isn't reality. It, it couldn't happen. Second, to expand beyond that, to suggest that Christians as a movement should have abolished slavery in the ancient day is also a fantasy. It's forgetting what Christianity was in these early days when Paul is writing these letters. Christians are a minority and they're operating again within what we might define as a totalitarian-like government. Christians did not have an overwhelming voice. They were not respected politically, and they had no political capital to make this change. But what we do see Christians doing, I think if we look carefully, is similar to what Christians did with respect to infants and young children as they would gather those exposed infants off the streets and care for them and love them. I think if you look carefully in the biblical record and beyond, Christians did not move to abolish slavery in their state because that was not a possibility, but they did move to, to change things in their communities. We'll see this more particularly with Paul when you read the New Testament, and that is Paul where he had influence and ability, he advocated for the release of slaves. If you read Paul's letter to Philemon, Paul appeals to Philemon to do what is right. He says, I have the confidence in Christ to command you to do what is right. And then, of course, he makes a, a tactical move by saying, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to appeal to you on the basis of love. To free your slave Onesimus, and to receive him not as a slave, but as a brother. So where we might accuse Paul for not changing his society, he changed his society where he was. So when we read these texts, we should not assume that slaveholders who read these verses to their slaves interpreted the Bible correctly. That's what happened. That, that, that's a mistake to make, to say slaveholders who quoted these texts to their slaves to compel them to obedience understood the Bible and understood these texts. That would be wrong. When we look at Paul's work and ministry, it points in the opposite direction. So bringing these ideas together, when we approach this text, we need to say slavery was wrong. Paul and the Christians had no political capital to change it on, on a structural level. So then we need to ask, what recourse did they have? And we find that recourse in these verses. 
What I'm going to suggest is that Paul presses forward, giving instructions in a way that, that enters into a matrix of encouraging submission and subversion at the same time. And, and that's not my language. There are others who have said this and who I'm drawing on. But when Paul is giving these commands, he's, he's on the one side drawing them to submit to their situation. But then on the other side, he's giving them wise, tactical movements to subvert the ongoing social order. In other words, we could say he follows in the path of Jesus, who brought the kingdom reality to bear in a way that turned the world upside down, if you have eyes to see it. So he begins by giving instructions to slaves. So we've considered historical context. Let's look at the actual literature, the text. And Paul starts by instructing and addressing slaves. Now, because you've been tracking along, you have the ears to hear that when Paul addresses slaves directly, he's breaking with the social convention in the norm at the time. Household codes, instructions for husbands and wives, children and parents, and slaves and masters, that's very common. What's uncommon is for those who are considered the subordinate to be addressed directly. So in the ancient household codes, guys like Aristotle would, would not address the slaves, they would just address the master, and, and the master would enforce things on the slaves. So for Paul to speak to the slave directly, he is speaking to those who had no legal standing in their society on equal par with everyone else he's addressed in the church. That, when, when we hear his address to slaves, because we're not in that world, it might not sound remarkable, but this is remarkable. He, he is subverting the social convention to address slaves as true human beings, as full participants in the covenant community. Now, there, there are two other features of Paul's address to the slaves that I think you need to note to be able to hear everything else correctly. First, if you can imagine yourself as someone with no legal existence being addressed directly towards the end of this letter, I think it would have the effect of validating for you that everything else you heard in this letter is true for you and addressed to you and you're included in it. So when Paul earlier talks about being redeemed from enslavement in sin and being made part of the body of Christ equal with others, called to a community where individuals would submit to one another in the love of Christ, when Paul addresses them directly, he says, all of these things are true for you as well. What that does on a practical community social level is to tear the bottom out of the kind of view of a person that says they have no legal existence and they don't matter. Well, Paul has just declared that they do matter. And in fact, they're part of the very body of Christ they're able to serve in the office of evangelist and pastor, teacher, and prophet and apostle. And in fact, he identifies with them in some way as he speaks of himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. So, so if we hear this rightly, there's a kind of validation by this direct address to the slaves that says you're part of this community. This, this is for you. But then also, if you're a slave hearing this direct address, directly to you, 
I, I think you're starting to pick up on themes in parallels between your situation as a slave and the description of humanity prior to salvation in Jesus Christ. The overriding language throughout this letter regarding sin and separation from God is the language of slavery. And in the language of salvation is the language of redemption from the sin of slavery. So when slaves are hearing the language of the kingdom and the language of the gospel, I think there's something that's going on in their head and in their master's head that says, this exact language that's being used to describe my redemption, it, it needs to take full effect in this life. The gospel doesn't stop as a spiritual reality, but it, it invades my categories for the rest of life, such that redemption in the breaking of chains and everything that, frankly, we've sung about this morning should be true not just spiritually, but in every way. So this community of faith that's defined by redemption from the slavery of sin, I think Paul is intending to become defined by redemption from all sorts of slavery. So Paul addresses these slaves, affording them a dignity denied to them by virtually anyone else. But he writes to them, starting in verse 5, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart, as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive back from the Lord. Okay, there, are, there are two important pieces that I want you to pick up on here. The first is that final line directed towards the slaves. Knowing that whatever Good, each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. Now, if you're having a flat reading of Scripture, you're, you might agree with the ancient slaveholders and say, this is great motivation for, for the slave to obey. And in fact, masters, it's kind of you to tell your slaves to obey you because that, that gets them greater rewards in heaven. Well, that's the kind of flat reading that, that we can find in, in documents elsewhere. But what Paul is doing is he's bringing submission and subversion together such that there might be a, a melody line of submission, but there's a strong harmony that overtakes the melody that's subversion, that, that really changes the way that you're going to go forward here. And ultimately, I want to suggest that it disempowers human masters. It does this in two ways. First, by, by pointing attention to the final day where the slave and the free will receive back from the Lord, Paul is reminding slaves there is a final arbiter of justice on, on the day of the Lord. Whatever happens in this life, there is a king, the true master, who, who will mete out justice in a way that is fitting for what took place on earth. From a flat reading of the text, you might say, yes, slaves, listen to this. But I don't think that's hearing it as the slaves would have heard it. I think they're hearing it and saying, there, there's hope here. There, there is a, a Christ, there is a king who, who will do what is right, who is a just judge. So Paul points their attention to the final day 
But I think perhaps even more significant than that is a harmony line that, that comes forward to the front that disempowers masters, not just on the final day, but also in the present. He tells the, the slaves over and over again to obey your masters as, you, as Christ, to do work not, not as people pleasers, read not as master pleasers, but, but as pleasers of God. Okay, you might hear this in, in, on a flat reading, like people from days gone by say, Paul is positioning masters as the stand-in for Jesus, ruling with his authority over the slaves. So therefore, slaves, obey your masters, because in doing so, you are obeying Jesus himself. That's one way of reading it that I think misses Paul's entire point. What Paul is doing is disempowering the masters and saying something like, slaves, you're, you're, not, you're stuck in this situation. You have no recourse, but they're not your master. Christ is your master. So let me, let me give two analogies that fall short of the intensity of what's going on here, but I think we'll, we'll start to paint a more clear picture. If, if you have children and um, one of them is disobeying, and mom is trying to get this kid to obey. He's disobeying and throwing a fit. And dad walks in and snaps his finger and says, obey your mom right now. Well, on one level, the dad is probably doing something helpful. But on another level, he's sort of reaffirming that mom has no authority. And the only way you need to obey is when dad walks in and snaps his fingers at you. So, so there's a way in which there's the, the, the matrix of parenthood where, where these things happen. But ultimately, there, when, when one spouse comes in and swoops in and forces obedience out of a child, it takes away the, the authority of the other parent, doesn't it? So, so that's a very small analogy. Let, let me give you a different one that, that maybe is more relatable for everybody. Imagine you're at work. Um, one of your coworkers is at this staff meeting and that, that individual is instructed to do something by your boss. And, and the coworker just says, I'm not doing that. I don't want to do that. And, and then um, there starts to be some tension in the room. And then the peacemaking coworker on the other side of the table looks at the resistant coworker and kind of just gives the, the nodding of the head, the, the shrugging of the shoulders, the, the just come on, man, just do it. And that the resistant coworker looks at, at the peacemaker and says, fine, I'll do it. Well, what's, what's the boss thinking? Well, let's add to the picture. The, the boss is like knowing everyone likes this other co this peacemaking coworker way, worker way better than me. And in fact, everyone's hoping I take an early retirement because they really want to have that person as their boss. Well, what happens is every time the peacemaking coworker gives the, the, the nod and the shrug to the person that encourages them just to comply with their boss. Every single moment that happens, boss loses more and more authority, and he knows it. He can feel it. He can feel these people are only complying with my directives because that their coworker is, is encouraging them to. And they're not doing it because they're obeying me. They're doing it because they love and respect their coworker. And ultimately what happens is that boss just loses all authority and respect. And, and really, on a functional level, he has no authority in the office anymore. I, I think you understand how these things work in, in social settings. 
And I think that's a bit of what Paul is doing here. He's saying, slaves, you're stuck in this. This is reality. It's lamentable. Nobody wants it. And, and in fact, wherever, I've had, wherever I know slave masters well enough to, to release their slaves, I advocate for that. Read, you know, see my email to Philemon. You know, that, that's what I'm going for. But while you're stuck in this situation, and masters who I don't know very well at this church, you listen to this. They're, they're stuck here maybe, but they're, they're not here for you. They're living their life out with a different master. Your authority does not matter here. I think that's what Paul is doing here. He, he's operating within the, just the reality that you've got to submit. Because if you try to revolt against your slave master, they kill you. That, that was normal. Or they sell you off to a different slave master where you're doing harder work. So, so submit. But let's subvert this. Let's, let's turn this upside down. Because you have a different master. You, you have a master who will do what's right on the final day. So live for him. When we hear the text in that way, this is not something that leverages obedience and compulsion to slaves in, in modern world in, in America or in our history. This is a text that helps oppressed and suffering people navigate through life in, in a way that disempowers and that eventually changes the whole structure. Now, you might disagree with me on how I've interpreted this, but there's one final point that should at least cause you some discomfort if you'd ever be inclined to say that the application by slave owners in America was the right application of this text. When we read the household codes, Paul addresses husbands and wives, and his instructions for, for the way that they relate is rooted in a pre-sin creation order that then deals with post-sin creation order. When he talks to children and to their parents, he addresses them with a command from the scriptures that once again roots that relationship in God's plan for humanity. When he addresses slaves and masters, he appeals neither to the Old Testament nor to creation as foundational for the existence of this relationship. So I think if you were to ask Paul about these relationships, he would say husbands and wife relationships, those need to keep existing because that's how God made it. Children and parents, yeah, that's how God made it. That's, that's how there are more children and parents. Slaves and masters, that can go away. It's not connected to the creation order of God or his redemptive purpose in this world. In fact, the redemptive purpose of God is defined and spoken about in terms of freedom from slavery, not the continuation of slavery. Okay, so, so those are Paul's subversion submission, matrix to the slaves. Now he turns his attention to the masters. And you might look at this and say, well, there is just such a small amount of text for, towards masters. Why, why is that small? Well, it's not because his commands don't matter. I think what's going on here is Paul is, he's, he's given long explanatory text that really has an air of compassion and comfort for slaves and then in a brief moment he twists and gives a terse short sentence to the masters and one that is not encouraging or comforting if you're a master 
So this is what he tells masters. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. That, that final note is a note that would leave you sort of jarred if you're a master. You're not feeling good about it. You're, you're going home and thinking about this a little bit. So he says, masters, treat your, your slaves the same way. What does Paul mean there? Well, I don't know exactly. Some have suggested that Paul is telling masters, well, I just told your slaves to obey you. Now you treat them the same way by obeying them or something like that. Perhaps that's what he had in mind. I think perhaps more to the point, Paul is trying to get them to operate in a way that looks toward the final day when Christ the judge will mete out justice. So he just directed the slaves' attention to that final day where they'll receive whatever they do back from the Lord. And now I think he's telling masters the same thing. Treat your your slaves in the same way. You take on the same MO. You take on the same way of being because Christ is going to return back to you how you operate in this life as well. So he goes on to tell them not to threaten their slaves. Once again, this just reinforces that slavery was awful. And even as Paul operates within this realm of submission, he subverts it. You'd be a different kind of master if you're going to keep holding on to your slave. But then he tells them, you have a master in heaven. And, and he, on the final day, is not going to look at you as any better than your slave. You will have no rights and privileges as you stand before him that your slave does not have. I think a congregation hearing this is going to put it into application and into action in their lives in a way that effectively dismantles slavery in that community. Paul's instructions here would not allow for the same kind of slave system to go on in the church. It would just be impossible. He's divested the masters of their authority and he's invested slaves with with dignity and worth and value before Christ their king. Okay, so I think in its original context, that's what's going on. So now we have to say, well, what do we do with this text? With a preface remark, I want to say that we don't put the, every text into action in the same way all the time. So there are some texts that have more relevance or, or um, application to our modern day and age right now than it did then. That's the nature of an ancient document. We're in a different culture, we're in a different system, we're in a different time and place. And so I don't think that we need to be pressed to say someone every day in our church needs to be putting this text into action in their lives. Uh, let's therefore say the equivalent application is for employees and employers. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that we need to say we must find a way to squeeze this into our experience. So therefore, employers don't threaten your employees because they have a master and you have a master. It just doesn't quite fit. Should employers threaten their employees? No, I, I don't think we need this text to say that. But I also don't think we can say, employees, obey your, ma your masters at work. Obey your bosses. Because in our economic system and job structure, if you're in a job where you are mandated to obey your employer, even at the risk of death, you're probably in a bad job 
And if you can find another job, get another job. I don't think we can draw those same lines of application. I do, however, think that there are times, even in our American history, where there are Christians who are in the position of the slave in this instance. For example, whenever a military draft is in order, and there are Christians who are drafted into the army or some other branch of service, and they're required to obey their commanding officers even at the expense of their life, where they suffer mistreatment, where they face these sort of situations that are are not desirable, I think that Paul's words find close application and relevance. It would be saying to that soldier, this Christian soldier, look, man, if you disobey your commanding officer, if, if you run away from your unit, you're, you're, going, to, you're going to be court-martialed or, or whatever the punishments might be, and, and this is, that's going to stick with you the rest of your life. So, so you need to submit in this, in this case. Obey your commanding officer even though you don't want to be here. But um, if, if you can find a way for freedom, as Paul tells slaves in 1 Corinthians, do if there's a way for you to be able to not have to do this, go for it. But, but also know that as you go through this season of life, while you're stuck there, you, you have a different master. And as you stand in line and your commanding officer is yelling at you to, I don't know what they do, stand straight, talk to Josh, who is in the Air Force, whatever they're yelling at you for, um, just put up with it for the time being, realizing that you have a master who will do what's right on the final day. I, I think in those situations, there are relatively close parallels, though still not the same. So then you might ask or, or say, I'm not satisfied with that. I think this text needs to have more relevance for my life because I've, I've never been drafted and I'm not in that kind of occupation. I think there's some broad relevance for all of us here. And that is, I think, however we think about the political implications of our Christianity and our faith, we look to individuals like Paul as a model for working out our faith in a political climate that may not be favorable to Christians or, or to Christian ethics and values and beliefs. So what I am suggesting is that very often Christians will find themselves at odds with the city of man, the, the kingdoms of this world, and as we await the final coming of Christ in, in the, the kingdom of God in its fullness, we will always be in a situation where we're relating to political realities that are disfavorable to us and that perhaps go against the grain of redemption. In that world, which we're going to be in, we should not operate in a resistant kind of way that, that is going to get ourselves killed or something like that. I don't think God is demanding us to, to advocate for his kingdom to come here before he brings it. Things will be right when God makes all things right here. Yet, as we press forward as Christians pursuing gospel uh, values and, and kingdom orientations, we can rightly pursue incremental change, but that change begins with our society and our community as a church. So our political action begins in our assembly as we work out the commands to love one another and to obey Christ and, and to put the gospel into embodied shape in the way that we relate to one another. So let me give you an example. 
I don't think that Christians are called to go to arms and, and fight for abortion rights against our government. However, in following Paul's incremental, local community-focused change example, Christians are called to wherever there are people who they know and who they're connected to, where there are, are mothers who are afraid to have their children for whatever reason, who, who would prefer abortion because they can't provide for that child, your incremental change is to provide for that child, for the church to take this person up and help them. This, this, is, what, th- this is one example where I, we're not called to arms, but we are called to make changes in our community in as much as we're able. Let me say what I'm not saying. I am not saying that, that we have freedom to do whatever we want because we're Christians. What I'm saying is that where the gospel instructs us in a particular direction, we work within our community to, to bring that into form and shape and embodiment. What that does is it draws us into that matrix of subversion and submission that Paul demonstrates here, where, where we subvert the sinful order of our world while also recognizing that we are not Christ and we don't bring in his kingdom. We wait for that day, but we do so in a way that puts the gospel into application here at Resurrection Church. And it resists the temptation to join with whatever side of the spectrum you might fall, liberal or conservative politically, to dismantle systems and to enforce your will on others. Instead, we submit ourselves to the gospel of the kingdom and we let it work itself out in our community. For some, this will not be satisfying on a political level or on an application of this text. But I want to suggest that we, we need to hear this text, recognizing the historical constraints, but we need to look forward beyond that text to the warfare that is prescribed for Christians. Christians are not prescribed a call to dismantle your political system wherever you are by going to arms against it. Instead, you're called to dismantle whatever remnants of of the city of man in spiritual form there are as you take on the armor of the Lord and fight the spiritual battle that Christ has put before you. And as you fight that battle, the gospel will become all the more evident in our community and in our lives. We need Christ's help to do this. We need the Spirit's help to discern when and how and where we operate as we navigate this complex world where we're in the overlapping city of God and city of man. This takes discernment and wisdom and discussion. And even as you relate as church members together, you need to learn to be able to talk about these things together. And, and to look to the scriptures, into examples like Paul's here, as you navigate your discussions about what's appropriate or inappropriate for Christians to do as we navigate this broken world and as we long for Christ's return. I'm going to leave this here and with you to talk about. But as you do it, embrace the kingdom of God in its already not yet form. Don't demand that life is perfect now. 
instead, where you have the opportunity to be like Jesus and give of yourself for the other to make their experience of life more kingdom-like, do it. And where there are, there are situations that you're in where the goodness of the gospel and the kingdom is not evident, bear with it, seeking the discernment of the Lord, seeking to find a way forward such that if you are left in a position that's not desirable, you know that Christ will be there on the final day. And that's the hope that we all have. So let's pray and ask that God would stir that hope up in our heart, that he would give us wisdom and discernment to know how to relate to this world before Christ comes. Father, this text is tough. These ideas are tough. Figuring out what the gospel means, knowing that the kingdom of Christ is indeed political, but it is a kingdom that is not of this world, it's a kingdom that will come fully and truly when you remake this world. Give us wisdom and discernment. Help us to know how to navigate these things. Help us to help others who wrestle with these texts and perhaps misunderstand them and accept the interpretive practices of those who have gone before in a way that did the opposite of what Paul intended here. Pray for mercy and grace and for your spirit most of all to guide us and to bring us into your truth. In Christ we pray. Amen.